0: This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. First up today, a conversation about the life and times of an 18th century ex slave who bought his freedom and rewrote his life. And coming up, I'll be talking with Father Terence Klein, who studies fundamental theology, the area in which theologians hash out the most basic terms of their field. What do we mean by grace? What do we mean by evil? What do we mean by the word soul? Father Terence Klein has a few ideas.
1: Even though I'm not God, I, the last thing, I didn't mean to pull that <laughs> out at you to, you know, surprise you with that. And here I thought I had gotten <laughs> God into my studio.
0: <laughs> That's coming up on Fordham Conversations, but first.
2: He was born in 1745 in present-day Nigeria, kidnapped into slavery at age 11. He was sent first to the Caribbean and then to Virginia.
0: This is the story of a Lauda Equiano, whose life began free.
2: One of his slave masters gave him the name Gustavus Vasa. Gustavus Vasa was a Swedish king from the 16th century, a kind of hero in his own right. And it was not uncommon for slaves to be given the names of past or ancient heroes, usually sarcastically or ironically. You see this a lot, slaves with, with names, for example, like Caesar.
0: Think about how many times you sign your name. "'What if it were given to you in mockery?' The 18th century man known in slavery as Gustavus Vassa reclaimed his identity as a Lauda Equiano. He bought his own freedom and went on to write a book about his life.
2: It was written to be popular. It's written like a popular novel, really, or a popular travel narrative.
0: And in the 1790s, it was either the British bestseller in American bookstores or one of the British bestsellers in American bookstores. Um,
2: So in Philadelphia, Boston, New York.
0: You'd walk in, wipe your feet, find the nearest clerk and say, excuse me, sir, do you have a copy of of... What is the name of the book? The Interesting... Yeah,
2: it's called The Interesting Narrative. That's it? Yeah, I can read you the full title, actually, just so people know I'm actually looking at a real book. The full title was The Interesting Narrative of the Life of Alada Equiano, or Gustavus Vassa, the African written by himself. The written by himself bit was not unusual. A lot of slave narratives were actually either written or ghostwritten by white abolitionists, so Equiano wanted to proclaim on the title page that he wrote this himself. Uh, my name is John Bugg. I'm an assistant professor in the English department at Fordham University. And I primarily teach uh, literature of the Romantic period, the late 18th and early 19th century. The reason that the, that this book is unique is that it's the first slave narrative to talk about somebody's life from kidnapping in Africa through the Middle Passage, the transportation across the Atlantic into the Caribbean, and then sort of give an eyewitness account of all of those events. There were a few slave narratives before this, but none of them talked about the Middle Passage, and they actually didn't talk about the slave trade that much. This one is much closer to the narrative of Frederick Douglass in being the story of someone's emancipation from slavery, so documenting that whole process from enslavement to to becoming free and the way that, that they made that happen.
0: What made Equiano himself unique among other freedmen that had written narratives before him?
2: For lack of a better phrase, Equiano was ideology-proof. He seems to have a kind of spiritual and intellectual Teflon so all of the discourses that were in place that were meant to make him understand that he was supposed to be illiterate, that he was supposed to remain a slave in Caribbean plantations, that it was okay to beat him without punishment all of the sort of apparatus surrounding the slave trade which was you know an, an enormous ideological network of ideas simply didn't take hold on Equiano for whatever reason. It's almost like at moments he's visiting from another time or another place and is simply looking at this enormous machinery of the British Empire and shaking his head and saying, I refuse. Macriano, as a young man and as a a young adult, will talk about getting beaten to a pulp by either his master or other white people, other people involved in the slave trade. Instead of succumbing or in some way having his spirit broken, he says things like, I jumped up, dusted myself off, and went on to town to sell the rest of the oranges that I had in my bag. And he'll make maybe two or three cents profit from these sales, and then he'll go and buy some more oranges and keep building up his sort of personal uh, wealth until he could finally purchase his own manumission, his own freedom, which he did. Aquiano seems to be somebody who, whose own liberation might be partially the upshot of his unwillingness or inability to process the size and scope of the forces that were against him.
0: You think he might have just been oblivious?
2: He portrays it in the autobiography (laughs) at times as though he were oblivious. That's impossible, clearly. Uh, I think that's sort of a kind of rhetorical strategy because it's either oblivion, obliviousness, or anger directed at the British Empire and necessarily his white British readers who are using sugar and all of the products and riches of the the transatlantic slave trade. So I think he makes a sort of strategic decision to act as though he doesn't realize that there's this entire entire machinery that is set up to that was meant to set up to grind him out use his labor and then kill him.
0: He just does not register that in the book because he doesn't want to turn off the white readership.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, he does have a kind of geography of blame. In other words, when he does need somebody to be an agent in these horrors that are happening to the bodies of African people that agent is almost always projected onto a white Caribbean plantation manager he very rarely blames anybody in England anybody on English soil, anybody in London when he needs to blame somebody it's either the degenerate plantation owner in the Caribbean or the equally or even more degenerate slave traders in South Carolina. So he does blame some white people, but they're geographically removed from his reading public.
0: Rather than shame the British reading public, Equiano hawked his book to them in bookstores and in pubs throughout the British Isles.
2: He basically invented the idea of the book tour that authors go on today. And so you would go down, you would meet Equiano. He was always dressed to kill. We know from some of the surviving copies of his book that he would also inscribe them, he would sign them. So this was a real modern-style uh, book tour um, complete with a meet-and-greet and greet, an autographed edition. Part of it was, you know, to verify that he was, in fact, the author of this narrative, um, that he was a literate African, that he was, he was responsible for telling his own story. This wasn't ghosted for him. So this was a sort of unusual cultural practice that he invented.
0: You say he was dressed to kill. He held himself to a pretty high standard in that respect.
2: Sure, yeah. He always dressed very well. It's something he took a lot of pride in. Uh, So here's a passage from the interesting narrative itself. It's the moment when Equiano... Finally feels like he has enough money to purchase his own manumission. So I'll just read to you. At the dances I gave, my Georgia superfine blue clothes made no indifferent appearance, as I thought. Some of the sable females who formerly stood aloof now began to relax and appear less coy. So this is his Georgia superfine blue suit that he bought um, at the moment of his manumission.
0: Somebody out in the world is is going to be depressed when they hear that they did not coin the term superfine before (laughs) 1780s.
2: I should say that superfine was a category of material in 18th century clothing shops. You know, for Equiano, it just meant the most expensive. But I like the way that the term (laughs) has entered popular culture to mean something a little bit funkier.
0: In addition to selling his book, he was selling an anti-slavery argument and mm-hmm. an anti-racist argument. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that one of the ways he did that was to shift blame for slavery away from Britain maybe and kind of put it, you know, over in the islands. It's sure. over there. It's their problem. How yeah. how else did he do this?
2: How else did he Did
0: he push the anti-slavery agenda in his writing, the anti-racist argument in his writing.
2: Autobiographies, the way that they sort of work rhetorically is that readers tend to be invited to embody the first-person eye of the text. And so you see everything through the eyes of the narrator and you live with them through their trials and tribulations, and one of the things that Equiano talks about is that after he himself was manumitted, among various other things that he did was that he worked as an overseer, an overseer of slaves. I mean, this is ambiguous for a lot of people because it seems obviously hypocritical, but one thing that happens in that passage is that he really puts himself into the rhetorical position of somebody who is already deeply invested in the slave trade and shows the process by which somebody like this might reasonably become disenchanted with that trade and decide to leave it behind, even if he doesn't know what else he's going to do to support himself. He realizes that ethically he cannot participate in this, and so he returns to London. You know, whatever his fate may be, it won't be as a participant in this uh, program. So he sort of leads people through a process of coming to see the slave trade, and slavery as both ethically reprehensible, but also possibly economically unnecessary for them, that there are other ways to make a living and there are other ways for the British Empire to grow and expand besides the slave trade.
0: What still don't we know about a Lauda Equiano?
2: I think what remains curious is that he was involved in in certain uh, massive moments um, in the history of the abolition movement that he never mentions at at all, either in his interesting narrative or elsewhere. One example of this, in 1781, there was a slave ship. It was uh, called the Zong, Z-O-N-G. The captain of the Zong decided to throw 122 of the slaves overboard because they were ill, and he was afraid that he wouldn't be able to sell them when he reached the Americas. So he was coming from Africa to the Americas. Because you could insure your cargo on a slave ship, these slaves were insured, so there was a price on on each of them. And so by throwing 122 of them overboard, he hoped to recoup the insurance. When Equiano found out about this, he went immediately to Granville Sharp, one of the prominent white abolitionists. And it was Granville Sharp who then brought this to um, sort of broader attention, national and and parliamentary attention. And it became known as the Zong Massacre and was kind of a watershed moment because, however, one managed to convince oneself to overlook what was going on in the uh, British slave trade until 1781, um, it became impossible for people to discount or cashier into oblivion the Zong Massacre. It was just this sort of horrendous moment in British history. And the whole idea that one could try to recoup insurance money from this, this was a business transaction, and the sort of terror involved in that. The Zong Massacre is probably the most significant moment in the abolition movement of the 1780s. Equiano was the one who essentially brought it to British national attention by going and and pounding on Granville Sharp's door, which he literally did. Nowhere in the interesting narrative does this appear. I mean, chronologically, he talks about all of these years, and he talks about every other thing that he was involved in 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 the late 18th century Battle of Lewisburg, North Pole, you name it. He worked as a purifier of waters on the North Pole expedition, purifying uh, salt water to fresh water for, you know, so that people could drink it. Um, So every other, you know, minute detail of his life seems to make it into the interesting narrative, except for his key role in bringing to British national attention the greatest massacre of the 1780s. Why does he leave that out? I'm not sure. What else does he leave out? We don't know.
0: So, Alauda Equiano, brazen self-promoter, rails against the establishment, but also embraces parts of it. Do you see any modern-day Alauda Equianos today?
2: Anybody who, I think, is willing to work within a system to generate any kind of reform, This sort of model of of political activism that aims towards working from the inside of a system rather than from the outside of a system. And I think in general, this kind of activism is deprecated as, as either... A kind of neoliberalism, a version of selling out, a version of conciliation. It generally has to do with the idea of compromise as a, as a four-letter word in political discourse. You know, at least today how Equiano is received, both by a lot of critics and, and a lot of students in the classroom, is as somebody who was too complicit with the British Empire, he was too implicated in the sort of cash nexus of the empire and slavery. Do you
0: think if you could just hang out with a lot of Equiano, do you think you'd like him?
2: I think that I I would like him, but I might not be the best person to ask. I might be a little bit biased. He seems to have been a um implacable optimist, and there was nothing that you could throw at him or do to him that seems that would that would shake this at all. He at least presents himself as somebody who woke up every day hopeful and in a good mood and thinking that things would improve and he could improve himself and his culture through his own efforts. And it's possible that that kind of thing would translate into somebody whose company might be inspiring.
0: Yeah, you mentioned that you were placing grad students. You help grad students kind of get the next job after grad school.
2: Yeah, they're on the academic job market now. It's that time of year.
0: And and what you said was humility does not help
2: no, I mean, I, I, what, I, what I don't want my students to do is think that something is, is beyond their grasp. Um, it's
0: a little bit of a Lauda Equiano philosophy speaking, maybe.
2: It is, and I think that might be one of the sort of professional casualties of being a romanticist working in my field, the idea that your reach should always exceed your grasp. This is a sort of standard romantic idea of thinking that the world can be better and that you can achieve more than you realize which you know I believe, and uh, and so I guess works like this are inspiring. And then working with my students, I tell them a lot of the same things, because I think that there is a general sense of fear and inhibition. So I'm I'm trying to beat that out of them now, and get them to see what they can accomplish.
0: That and it never hurts to feel pretty super fine about yourself.
2: Yeah, super fine is a good way to feel, and it's a good way to dress.
0: John Bug is an assistant professor in the English department at Fordham University, and he only has one other thing to say.
2: Uh, how's my hair? It's great. Super
0: fun. Okay. <laughs> You're listening to Fordham Conversations on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm Mary Wilson. Coming up next, the soul as a story. Father Terence Klein wants you to think of your soul as a story. And he seems to take in so many stories. You'll hear Klein quote liberally from Plato, from Dante, from William Faulkner, from Shakespeare. It's like he's running through a great books checklist. Klein's answers are discursive. He swoops through centuries of scripture, literature, and art to explain what he means. But if you get lost in the rhetorical loop-de-loops, the rendezvous point is always the same. And Klein always circles back to that basic premise of his work in fundamental theology, that carefully defining the words we use can help us understand our place in the world.
1: You know, the philosopher that I work with so much, Ludwig Wittgenstein, a Cambridge philosopher of language, he always said that a picture can hold us captive. And what he meant by that is that When you say the word soul, or when you say the word grace, or heaven, people automatically get some picture in their mind of the concept. And Wittgenstein's point is that if you've got the wrong picture, you're going to end up with the wrong conclusions, you're going to get the wrong insights. And my argument in the new book is that the picture that we've inherited of the soul is one that comes from Descartes uh, at the beginning of the Enlightenment, And that's of a sort of ghostly secondary self, you know, one that uh, travels around with us, inside of us, and then at death departs from us. That's the picture that I'm really arguing against.
0: You say it's not some disembodied ghost, ghostly thing.
1: I argue that the best picture of the soul is to think of a story, to think of the soul as narration, uh, because I'm trying to get away from this idea of the soul as ghostly object. Well, this is actually a phrase of Carl Rahner's. He said, you can't think of the human person as ending with his or her skin. And what he meant by that is that the picture that most of us walk around with is like, again, this ghost inside of us. But his point is that if you really want to know a human being, you've got to know her interests. You've got to know what decisions he's made. You've got to know uh, what experiences he or she has had. And that's why often with the students, I say, I guess that's what we're doing on Facebook, Right. I mean, we're saying, here are the books and movies that I like. Uh, This is the music uh, that is attractive to me. Here are my friends. So if you want to know me, you've got a page through Facebook. For me, that's a beautiful, maybe not beautiful, but it's a poignant metaphor of what I mean by soul. It's not this thing inside of you, but it is your history in this world, your narrative, your story. And I think that's one of the things that young people are trying to express with Facebook.
0: I never thought that Facebook was the key to my soul, but (laughs) I'll never look at it again. Well,
1: and of course the danger is, unfortunately, we've learned to market our souls. That's the thing that's a little bit scary.
0: Personal branding via the soul. How we view the soul is also connected to how we view the world if we see the soul as something that's this ghostly thing that transcends while our bodies stay here, then the world then is cast in this light that it's something to be suffered and tolerated and ultimately escaped from if you can. Exactly. Is that what you're
1: saying? Yeah, because, I mean, Plato gives a beautiful example of that when he has Socrates dying, and Socrates uh, turns to his companion and he says, remind me that I, I owe a chicken to Asclepius. And what he means by that is Asclepius was the god of healing, And he's about to be, you know, uh, executed. He's going to drink the poison and die. But the reason he owes a a sacrifice to the God of healing is because in Plato's idea, he's being set free from this world, this world of illusion. Uh, And if there's undergraduates listening, all you have to do is watch The Matrix. It's the same idea, Uh, that the world around us is not a real world. It's, It's dross. It's illusion. It's something to be escaped from. And my whole point is that if you think of the soul as a narrative... If you think of the soul as an actor with a history, uh, if you think of Jesus in those terms and his resurrection in those terms, then you have to say that the things we do here matter. Whether it's uh, working to preserve the environment, or whether it's working to extend human rights, or whether it's just making ourselves more of a person, you know, by uh, encountering masterpieces of literature uh, or beautiful art. Um, That's what it means to be a human being, is to, I sometimes put it, uh, to be a human being is to be desirous, uh, to be full of desire. We look for God in this world. Uh, We try to complete ourselves in this world. We are desire. We live our lives uh, searching for meaning, meaning in relationships, uh, meaning in the decisions of our life, even the mistakes of our life. Somehow this is destined to be taken up into eternity, that it's not simply erased, and that we're not translated into some other dimension without all of that.
0: One of the things that you say is that eternity is a a blossoming of the here and now. What does that mean?
1: The wrong image that most people bring to eternity is a really long time, (laughs) you know, and the Christian tradition, not just the Christian, the Islamic, the Judaic tradition, has always insisted that eternity is not a really long time. It's not a timeline running infinitely into the past and infinitely into the future. Eterni- eternity is not time. It's, it's, it's being off the, the radar or, or the mapping of time. Um, but I do like to use the phrase that eternity is the blossoming of time because it does suggest... That the, that the temporal things we do, the things we do in our daily life in order to fashion ourselves, to tell our story, to write our story, that somehow these are taken up into eternity. And there was a line like this in the, in the, the Broadway uh, show History Boys a few years ago. The old teacher is trying to convince one of the young men you know, why he should le- read literature. And he says to them, have you ever picked up a play or a novel in which you read a paragraph and you suddenly say, I thought I was the only one who ever thought that. I I thought I was the only one who ever imagined that. And he said, that's when you know that you've encountered another soul. Uh, That's when another person has reached out uh, through the ages, you know, literally, to touch you. And see, that's one of the things I want to pick up with this idea of the soul is, if we can create literature that transcends time and space. and We were talking about this before we went on the air, you know, that I saw Hamlet last night. And if Shakespeare can just stir my soul to its foundations while I'm listening, you know, to the Danes speak, the classic, the piece of literature, has literally transcended time. Eternity, somehow something has flowered.
0: This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm Mary Wilson. I'm talking with Father Terrence Klein, who is hard at work on a book that better defines the Christian notion of the word soul. Klein shows all the symptoms of being a literature buff, a student not only of Scripture, but of plays and novels and art. He's a believer, he says, in narrative, in the soul as a story, and in living as storytelling. And if we can think of life in that way, then suffering becomes just another plot point, painful, just the same, but necessary to bringing us to our own story's cathartic conclusion
1: and That's when I think you've really accomplished something when you can when the person can say, "My story, which I thought did not make sense, my story does make sense; it does have a purpose. you know when we do suffer, what's uniquely human about our suffering is that we we feel an anxiety and a dread that animals can't f- can't feel i mean they can obviously they can suffer horribly as they die but they don't think about what it means to go down into the darkness they don't think about uh what it means to lose one's loved ones to see one's projects undone uh to have to cross over into You know, as Hamlet says, the undiscovered country. That's uniquely human, and it's what makes our suffering so terrible. But I think the worst thing, to be a human being and to think that your story doesn't make sense, that the suffering doesn't have a purpose, that it's just all sadness, and it's destined to be wiped away. You know, uh, Faulkner picks it up from Shakespeare, Sound and Fury Signifying Nothing – To me, that's the very meaning of hell. And unfortunately, I just think so many people, that is the way they live their life, thinking that it's all meaningless. And my notion of literature, my notion of theology, of what it means to be a believer is to believe that stories make sense. Even though I'm not God, I... (laughs) The last thing, I did not mean to pull that <laughs> out at you, to, you know, surprise you with that. And
0: here I thought I had gotten God <laughs> into my studio.
1: But, uh, I mean, I remember I, I was summoned back to Kansas because my Uncle Kendall had died. My Aunt Betty, who's a Amazon of a woman, uh, meets me at the door and comes over and gives me a tearful, tearful embrace. And she says, the priest says that they needed my Kindle in heaven. And I didn't say anything. She says... That is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And I said, really? And she said, yes, because she said, Kindle was useless. She said, I loved him dearly, but he was a useless husband. How could they, How could God need him more than I need him? I need him. And the lesson I've always taken from that is, you know, I think the priest or any believer, we make a mistake when we think we know where the story's going. Just think about it when you go to the movies. One of the things that we like about movies are movies in which we get taken up into the story and we don't know where it's going. Movies we don't like are ones that, five minutes into it, you know exactly who the good people are, who the bad people are, and where it's all going to go. You just watch it happen. Is somebody who really thinks they already understand the story. And I don't think that's given to us on this side of the grave.
0: So it strikes me that, that you're writing about the meaning of the soul because it helps kind of put to bed some of the suffering that is caused when you think the soul is, when you think the soul is separate from you, when you think that the here and now will soon be over and erased and just canceled out.
1: I like that phrase that you said, um, that you think of the soul as separate from yourself. That's a great definition of alienation, you know, to not feel that we belong, to not feel that our story has a purpose. There's another book that, I it's it's almost finished, but I take a, a... something that the New York Times reported on several years ago that was happening in, in the outer boroughs of New York, and that was shoes on telephone lines. And, you know, I'd seen these shoes on telephone lines, but I I thought, I don't know, bully set upon some child and threw his or her shoes up on the lines. These were actually thrown by young people themselves because it was a way of saying, I'm here. Those are my shoes up there. You know, may, the, these are maybe kids who don't have a Facebook page. Uh, but, you know, in a sense... We're all trying to say, and even maybe rather sheepishly, sheepishly, I'm here. I have a reason to exist. I think people, if they could read my story, if they could know me, would find it a good story. Unfortunately, and this is the other thing that you highlighted, Mary, is that there is this deceiver that says, your story doesn't make sense. In fact, if other people knew your story, they would be scandalized. They would find it sinful. Absurd, you know. And Ignatius of Loyola, the founder of the Jesuits, his his point was: as long as you leave the story in darkness, the evil one has real control over you because the evil one has convinced you that uh, your story is observed. But when it can be shared, when it can be brought out, and other people can validate it, that is how we see um, that that we that we make sense, that our story makes sense. But you know, that's easy enough to say in a Fordham studio. (laughs) Uh, The problem is all of us have to go back and live tomorrow and and accept whatever happens tomorrow and and whatever doubts that leaves. And again, there's always going to be the the tug of grace saying, it does make sense. I don't know how, but it makes sense. And there's always going to be that other voice that says, you know, this is a tale told by an idiot. Um, It does signify nothing. Um, But that's, that's the... That's the great divide, you know, that we live uh, every day of our lives.
0: Just another time and day just a blade of pearls, Just another the Father Terence Klein is an assistant professor of theology at Fordham University.. Mm-hmm. This has been another installment of Fordham Conversations. To listen to past shows, check out the archives at WFUV.org or get the weekly podcast delivered to you. Just search for Fordham Conversations in iTunes. You'll find us. Next week, Robin Shannon will be back in the host seat talking with author John Eisenberg about his book on the famed football coach Vince Lombardi. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Mary Wilson. Just another life to live Just a word to say